This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Amen. Shall we pray? Our Lord, we are grateful for this word. Thank you for this reminder to love one another. And we ask that we will understand what it means to love one another as your word teaches us. We pray, Lord, that we will use the example of Christ and how he demonstrated great love toward us. May he be our model. May we follow him. May we be faithful to him to follow his commandment in this way, to love one another. Give us, Lord, the strength we need. Give us the wisdom we need. Help us to understand this doctrine. May it be central in our life that we might show forth good fruit, show forth that we are your friends, not your enemies. Give us this insight and give us this power to live according to your will. And we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the last message on this uh, section in chapter 15, we learned a few things about what Jesus was teaching us in verse 12. We learned that there is a distinction between the commandment of Christ and the commandments of Christ. Commandment refers to this one central commandment, which would be the manifestation that we truly love God and love one another by actually loving one another. That's why it is abbreviated into one commandment, love one another, proving that we love God. And then the plural of the commandments has reference to the Ten Commandments and the implications of the Ten Commandments. Because in other places, he has said to us that we should keep his commandments in the plural, such as John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Also, we saw last time about the inner to outer circles or inner to outer spheres of this love. We should love our neighbor as ourself, but that assumes we love ourselves in the proper way, and then we love our neighbor. And our closest neighbor, if we are married, will be our spouse, and then from there, our children. And then we also think of our relatives. We think of then our church family. We should love them and then beyond the church to those in society, as we are able to help those in society as needs come to our attention. So this is the way in which the Bible expects us to love. And again, this is the Bible, the Scripture, the Holy Word of God. We're talking about the way the Bible explains it, not the way the world explains it. The world has many perverse and distorted interpretations of what it means to love. They tout the word love. They love the word love. It's in the songs and poetry of the world. It's in their banners. It's in their bumper stickers. 
But whatever they believe about love is often, most often, contrary to what the Bible teaches true love is. That's why throughout the rest of our life, we must be seeking for ways to uproot and destroy and burn up the flesh with its corrupt views of love and conform our mind, our heart, our life according to the word of Christ. As the word of Christ defines it and explains it, that's how we should love one another. Now, in verse 12, or no, verse 13. In verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So here we must ask, if this is the greatest expression of love, if this is the greatest expression of love in the church, among believers, in the family of God, among the friends of God, friends of one another and friends of God himself, if this is the greatest expression of love, how in the world are we going to come to that point? If you think about it, if you think about the average church, the average local church, is it in the average local church that we find that there are men and women who are willing to die for each other? When they think of church, do they think of those who are sitting next to them as people for whom they would die? Do they look at it that way? Here he's saying we should look at it that way. He's saying we should. There is no greater expression of love. If we are expected to love, we're commanded to love one another, he's saying that the greatest measure or the greatest test of love, the greatest expression of love, is for one to lay down his life for his friends, for another. This is what he's teaching. Now, if this is a new concept, if we have not thought about this, if this is even an appalling concept, am I supposed to die for somebody else in the church? That we have never thought of it that way? Well, we should think of it that way because it's right here in John 15, 13. Christ is teaching that that's the kind of love we should have for one another. And this should not be so offensive or so astonishing to us. It should not be. Why should it not be? Don't soldiers enlist in their nation's military to be ready to die? And are they not doing it for their own countrymen, many of whom, most of whom, they have never met, they don't even know? Soldiers are doing it for the sake of patriotism, are they not? And then, when soldiers begin to uh, train, and when they are in the field, are they not becoming close to the men next to them? Don't they share with each other? Don't they promise to each other? Don't they even say that if one of them is slain on the battlefield, they will ensure that they recover the corpse and take proper care of their corpses? Don't they say that they're going to die for each other? They're going to protect each other? Soldiers do this. And most soldiers are not believers in Jesus Christ. If patriot soldiers can do that, can't Christians do that? We should do that. 
Another is in civilian life. Don't police officers enter that profession knowing that they could be killed and knowing that they need to protect each other? One policeman to protect another policeman? Are they not willing to die and leave their families behind, just like soldiers? They are willing, they enter into that profession, that occupation, with the knowledge that they could die. They enter that. And are police officers, are, are all of them believers? Do all of them profess faith in Christ? No. Whether in our country or in pagan countries, where they worship idols, whether here or abroad, they have police officers willing to die. Now, if the soldiers can be willing to die and officers can be willing to die, why shouldn't we? If someone objects that this analogy is a false analogy because the Bible does not compare us to that, the Christian life is supposed to be simple and easy and convenient, comfortable. No, no, we're not soldiers. We are soldiers. Second Peter 2... 2 Peter 2, 3 to 6. He compares us to three professions. 2 Peter 2, 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. The farmer is a hardworking farmer because the lazy farmer will not have a good harvest. So hard work, toil, is required of the farmer. It's not an easy life for the farmer. Nor is it an easy life for the athlete because he has to compete according to the rules. If he's not competing according to the rules, doing things naturally without any drugs or anything else that's crooked to inflate his abilities, his skills on the field, then the athlete is disqualified. So if he uses his natural abilities, then it's going to be very difficult. It takes intense training, hours and hours, all day long for many, many days and years to win the prize, to win the top prize. That's hard work. The Christian life is supposed to be that way too. And three to four, the Christian life is supposed to be a life of hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And when we are enlisted by Christ Jesus, We are not there to please ourselves and to think about everyday life. No, we are supposed to please the one who enlisted us into the military as a soldier. Who is the one who enlisted us? Christ did. God did. Therefore, our aim is to please Him and always ask every day from the moment we wake up, just as soldiers do early in the morning, The first thought should be, what am I supposed to do? What is my duty today? That's the way it should be. The same way with us. What is our duty? So then, we are indeed, we are indeed expected to be like soldiers willing to die. 
for one another. That's what he said. He said, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The soldiers have friends. The police have friends. Their own colleagues. Correct? And we have our friends. Those in the body of Christ. This is something that must happen for us to prove that we belong to Christ. This willingness to die for one another. Many of us are not at that point. And it takes time to get to that point. It takes time. And we should reach that point of willingness because of the love we have toward one another. It begins by little steps. It begins incrementally. And we should reach that point. Luke 16. Luke 16. 10 to 13. Luke 16, 10 to 13. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He teaches us here, the Lord Jesus teaches us here, that we must be faithful in a very little thing. If we are faithful in a little thing, then we can and will be faithful in much. But if we have a little responsibility and we're unfaithful, we're unrighteous in that, we don't handle it well, then why in the world will Christ give us more responsibility? If we cannot handle 10 cents, then how will anybody give us one dollar? If we cannot handle $1, how will anybody give us $100? Right? So we must be first faithful in whatever little day-by-day ways in which we are expected to love each other. And as we are faithful, then God will present to us other experiences, other opportunities, other situations when we have opportunity to even excel, to go from a little bit of love toward each other to more and more love toward each other in acts of kindness, deeds of faithfulness, encouragement, admonishment, whatever it is, we will grow in our love for one another. Ultimately, if that requires dying for each other, physically dying for each other, which may occur, then we ought to be willing to do that. This is the way Jesus means that we show no greater love than dying for one another. First, a word of clarification on Christ and actually an explanation of Christ since he is our model and example. And then practical ways in which we ought to love each other. First, Christ. When it says in verse 13, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Christ is implying 
that he is the perfect example. He's implying that he is the perfect example because he's been telling them troublesome things since chapter 13 about his own imminent death. And he's going to lay down his life for them, for the sheep. He's going to do so in terms of being the good shepherd and redeeming us from our sins. He is going to lay down his life for his friends. This shows that he laid down his life for his friends. He loved us to such an extent that though he was the eternal God, he came to the earth as a man, lived a perfect life, suffered hardship, suffered humiliation, was mistreated. Though he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, he did that not for himself, but for us. He died for us. That little phrase the scripture says, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. When it says for us, that little preposition for means in our place. If he dies, we don't have to die. If he receives our punishment, then we don't receive the due punishment, that is, the eternal punishment, lake of fire, hell, that we deserve because he died as a substitute for us. If we believe he died for us, then we are forgiven, we are released from our sins, the penalty of our sins is not expected of us because it was placed on Christ. This is the sense in which he died for us, his friends. But someone might say, does the scripture not say he died for us when we were his enemies? Yes, yes. So it is both. Both are true. He died for his friends in that they believed in him. So he's talking about their condition post-conversion. Post-conversion, they were his friends. But in his unique situation, in the situation of Jesus Christ, he actually died for what they did when they were his enemies. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, 6 to 11. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while... We were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. How did this reconciliation occur? In what condition did the Lord find us? Verse 6 says that we were helpless and ungodly. Verse 7 says that one does hardly die for a righteous man. Meaning, if we were 100% perfect, then why would anyone need to die for us? But for a good man, someone 
would dare even to die. That's what we meant earlier with soldiers who love each other and police officers who love each other. They die for each other, correct? Because they believe that one another is a good man, at least not a violent, wicked criminal, right? So they would die for each other. People do dare to do that. But in our case, what were we? Verse 8, we were sinners. While we were sinners, verse 9, we had the wrath of God on us that was removed. Verse 10, we were his enemies. We were his enemies. And verse 11, we needed reconciliation. Verses 10 and 11, we were unreconciled to God, which means we had hostility toward God. We were enemies. We had enmity and conflict with God. In Jesus' case, he is, in a sense, a model exception that we were his enemies before we were converted, yet he still died for us. But he also died for us in the sense that we were, he died for us as enemies so that we might become his friends by the work of Christ applied to our life. Both are true in the case of the ministry of Christ, applied to us, his redeemed people. But Christ is expecting us in the local church to look at one another as friends. As friends, not as enemies, but as friends. So as friends, where the human spirit would be all the more willing to die, he's saying, consider your relationship one another as friends, not as enemies, as friends. So that motivation should be there to have proper love for each other. Then, let's go to some scriptures on what it means to love or not to love one another. We'll start in Psalm 15. Psalm 15. Psalm 15, verse 1. 1 to 5. O Lord, who may abide in your holy tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. If we are to be those who are unshakable in faith, if we are to be those who are able to live or dwell, abide in the tent of God, in God's holy hill, to be in his holy presence, then what should we be toward one another? If we are to have a genuine and true eternal relationship with the God of heaven, then what should be true of, each, of us toward one another? Verses 2 and following. We walk with integrity. We work righteousness. We speak the truth in the heart. We do not slander, that is to speak lies or deceit against one another. We don't do evil to our neighbor. We don't take up a, a, a reproach against his friend. That is, somebody is 
slandering, saying something wrong about our friend, and we don't go along with the wrong because our friend is our friend. And verse 4, we despise the reprobate. We should despise, hate, detest the wicked, the reprobate. When we are doing that, then we are loving our friends because we are honoring those who fear the Lord. If we swear, swearing by God, not swearing by using cuss words or profanity, but if we are swearing by God, swearing an oath, we do so in order to fulfill it and not renege on what we promised we would say or do. Verse 5, we don't put out our money at interest. If one of our friends needs to borrow money, and we're talking about a genuine need, needs to borrow it, we don't charge interest for that. We don't charge interest. Yes, the friend should pay back, but we shouldn't charge interest. And we should never take a bribe. Never take a bribe so that we work against innocent people. These are ways in which we love one another. Now let's go to Proverbs 6, 6, 12 to 19. Proverbs 6, 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, is one who walks with a false mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who, with perversity in his heart, devises evil continually, who spreads strife. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken, and there will be no healing. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. These are actions, evil actions, evil deeds that one commits against another. And the one who commits it, verse 12 says, is worthless, is wicked, is false. Verse 16 says that God hates these people. He abominates or hates these people, verse 16 says. So whoever does these things is detested and hated by God. There's no love between that individual and God. If we have a false mouth, if we wink and signal and point, if we have perversity in heart, if we are devising, inventing evil continually, if we are spreading strife, spreading conflict, spreading discord, disharmony among each other, if we have haughty eyes, proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, is there such a thing as a murderous Christian? No. You cannot have murder and Christian together, which eliminates many people who are in prison for murder and who are unrepentant. We're talking about unrepentant murderers. It excludes them. Yet many of those in prison think that they are saved. Everything is swell between them and God. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. If there is no reluctance to avoid evil, why? Because 
They have a wicked heart with wicked plans. And this they do among brothers. It should not happen that way. Brothers should dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, 1. Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, 1 to 15, they should have dwelt together in unity. But John the Apostle tells us, 1 John 3, 11 to 15, and for what reason did Cain slay him, his brother Abel? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There was animosity, hatred that led to murder, Cain against Abel, because Abel lived a righteous, upright, circumspect life, and Cain did not. And he despised it so much, he got rid of Abel so he wouldn't have to see the model life that Abel led. That's the hatred that leads to strife among brothers, whether literal, biological, natural brothers or spiritual brothers. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. 9 to 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. At the beginning of these short exhortations, he starts by saying, let love be without hypocrisy. It should be genuine love, not hypocritical love, because hypocritical love is not true love. It should be genuine, sincere love according to the way the Bible explains it. And that entails hating evil, clinging to good. Verse 10, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. A devotion. That's not a casual love for one another. It's a serious love toward one another. Giving preference to one another in honor. Are we giving preference to one another in honor? Or are we looking for ways to downgrade, looking for ways to defame, looking for ways to dishonor our brother? If we're looking for those ways, this is not giving preference to one another in honor. We should not lag behind in diligence because if we are diligent, then we're going to be actively, proactively helping each other. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. 
Ultimately, in spirit, we serve God when we serve each other. 12. We rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, devoted to prayer. We need hope and we need to spread the hope. We need to persevere in tribulation and help each other persevere. We need to be devoted to prayer, pray for one another, to help one another. Practically, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. People need physical help, so help them. 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Don't isolate ourselves. Don't enjoy the good things alone. Don't um, suffer the sorrowful things alone. 16, have the same mind. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. It's easy for us to associate with men of esteem, but not lowly, humble people. It's harder for us. We have to overcome it and not be wise in our own estimation. 17 to 21, we never pay back evil for evil. Never pay back evil for evil. If someone has wronged us, we do the best we can to be at peace with that someone. But if there is a limit and that reconciliation has not taken place, then God will handle the rest. We leave room for the wrath of God for God to punish the one who does not want to be reconciled, who does not want to quit his evil. God will handle it. Let God handle it. Romans 13, 8. Romans 13, 8. 8 to 14. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is near to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly, as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. If we owe one another, then there is a tendency to prolong that debt toward one another. So he encourages us not to owe anything to one another, except to love one another. We are obligated in that way because the moment of our conversion, God made us debtors. So we have to pay one another. That's the expression of fruit, fruit of the Spirit, to one another. And this entails following the commandments of God, verse 9, which is summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially, love does no wrong to a neighbor. If we do wrong to one another, then we have failed to love our neighbor as 
ourself, right? Do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7, 12. It's the same here. Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. We don't want our neighbor to do us wrong, so we shouldn't wrong our neighbor. If we do that, if we understand that, we fulfill the law. We fulfill the purpose, the meaning, the interpretation of the law. Further, what are the deeds of darkness that we might commit against each other? Carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, jealousy. And these are summed up as the flesh and its lusts, verse 14. When we practice those deeds of verse 13, the evil deeds of 13, we're not loving each other. We're not loving ourselves when we do it, and we're not loving others. The commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, those who carouse, those who are are drunk, those who practice sexual sins, strife and jealousy, these people will say, and, and sensuality, that is, their five senses, they are insatiable. They always need to see, they always need to hear, they always need to taste, they always need to touch. They're obsessed with fulfilling their sensual desires. And that takes place in many ways. People like this aren't loving themselves, though they are indulging themselves, their flesh, they're not truly loving themselves, nor others. Romans 14. Romans 14, 13 to 17. 14, 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If we are wrongfully understanding this relationship between clean and unclean foods and the practice of it toward one another, if we misunderstand and wrongly practice, he says in 15, you are no longer walking according to love. We must walk according to love. Chapter 15, Romans 15, verse 1. 15, 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee or you fell upon me. 
For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are strong in faith ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Those who are weak in faith, we need to encourage, we need to build up, we need to help, we need to show patience, we need to instruct, we need to exemplify with our own life how they ought to believe and live. Look for His good, His edification, just like Christ did. Christ was willing to bear the reproaches of those who reproached God to come on Him. If, God, if Christ was willing to not please Himself, but the Father, then we should also not please ourselves, but the Father. And after quoting the Old Testament in verse 3, quoting Psalm 69, 9, he says, we should make use of the Old Testament for many examples of what it means to love each other or not love each other. Like we have already said, Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. Or as we read earlier, 2 Chronicles 21. Did Jehoram love his brothers? Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. Did King Jehoram love his brothers by destroying them all except one? No, he didn't. And not only did he mistreat his own family members, his own blood brothers, by killing them all except one, but he was a miserable leader and a selfish leader of the people who didn't even care about his own countrymen. So that when he died, there was no regret. He died with no one's regret. He must have been such an obnoxious person around everybody that nobody was sorry to see him die. That's not love. That's hate towards one another. That's why he says whatever was written in earlier times. There are many examples of true love and false love or true love and hatred in the scriptures. And God's goal is for our perseverance, encouragement, and for unity so that with one accord, one voice, we glorify God and Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are here to glorify Him and please Him. The book of 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the famous chapter of love. 1 Corinthians Chapter 13, 13, 1 to 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, And if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. 
Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. We cannot have any gifts, any skills, any abilities from God and be devoid of love. We must have love, true love from God that dwells in us for tongues, prophecy, knowledge, even our almsgiving, helping the poor, even if we give our bodies to be burned. Someone might give his body to be burned, but not do it in love. That may happen. He says, this is of no profit, no benefit to us. Love is central. It's central. It's crucial. It's critical for anything that we do to be acceptable to God. That's verses 1 to 3. Verses 4 to 7, ways in which it manifests itself. Patience, kindness, no jealousy, no bragging or boasting, no arrogance, does not act unbecomingly. To be becoming means to be appealing, appeasing, beautiful, aesthetic. Unbecoming means to the sight, it shows it's obviously wrong. It's obviously ugly, not beautiful. Does not seek its own, which means not selfish. Not provoked. Not take into account a wrong suffered. Provocation, or easy provocation, he's not speaking of no provocation, but he's speaking of unjustified provocation, should not happen, does not take into account a wrong suffered, is not counting, is not counting grains of rice and how many times somebody has offended, is not doing that, it is doing what is right in the moment, regardless of what somebody might have done against us, which includes loving our enemies. Further, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 6 is completely contrary to worldly love, because worldly love rejoices with unrighteousness. Worldly love rejoices in disregard of the truth. 
They don't care about what the truth is. They just say we need to love, just love. That's not true. We have to love in truth, by the truth, by means of the truth, with the truth, and in righteousness. Then we should bear, believe, hope, and endure all things, God-ordained things, God-approved things, with each other and for each other. And 8 to 13 stresses the fact that love endures forever. Because we live in the world now, we have faith and hope. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But once we are in the world to come, once the perfect comes, once we see face to face, once we are there in the presence of Christ, then there's no longer a need for faith and hope. Because faith and hope anticipate things. But once the anticipated thing is a reality, there's no more faith and hope. That's why he says that love is the greatest because love will last forever compared to faith and hope. Love lasts forever. God's love toward us, our love toward God, our love toward one another, we will enjoy forever and ever. That's why it is central now. It's central to those who are truly converted now to understand what it really is truly is. Second Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11 will show us an example, a model in the Apostle Paul. Second Corinthians 11, 16 to 33. This is the kind of love he had toward God and toward one another. 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen. Again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, that I also may boast a little. That which I am speaking, I am not speaking as the Lord would, but, in, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you, being so wise... Bear with the foolish gladly. Pause there. In 16 to 19, the Apostle Paul is being sarcastic. He's being sarcastic here in 16 to 19. And if you read this letter of 2 Corinthians carefully, he has much of it throughout the letter. This is his way of throwing the foolishness of the Corinthians back onto their lap. He's throwing it back onto their lap. So now, he's going to be literal 20 to 33. Straightforward and literal. For you bear with anyone if he enslaves you, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. Verse 21 is also sarcasm. But then 22... Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, 
Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. What afflictions the Apostle Paul endured. Did he not? Many times he could have died. From these experiences, many times he could have died. Why was he willing to do this? We love because he first loved us. God loved the Apostle Paul, therefore the Apostle Paul loved God. Then, in, after that fact, the Apostle Paul loved the brethren. He loved the church. He loved the church so much that he was willing to go in dangerous places to preach the gospel to bring converts, to evangelize, to save the chosen, 2 Timothy 2.10, suffered all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they might believe. And then, once they did believe, he would edify them, he would teach them, he would encourage them, he would admonish them to remain true to the Lord with a resolute heart. That's what he would do. And while doing that, proclaiming this truth to them, he was willing to undergo these many, many physical hardships. Then he says, apart from the external physical hardships, verse 28, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches who is weak without my being weak, who is led into sin with my, without my intense concern. I'm also not just going and suffering physical harm, but I have this internal turmoil and grief Concern because of those who are weak in the churches and those who are led into sin in the churches. I pray for them and I have concern that they might turn away from their weakness and from their sin. Isn't he loving God and loving his neighbor? Isn't he doing that? Of course he's doing that. He understood greater love has no man than this that one lay down his life for his friends. We have not even come close to many of these afflictions. We have not. Often for us, if it means not accomplishing a certain task, we would rather accomplish the task than love our neighbor. For us, if it means losing some sleep, we would rather have the sleep than help our neighbor. If it means spending some money, we would rather not spend the money so that we don't help our neighbor. There are many, many ways in which we dodge it. We ignore it. We avoid loving our neighbor. 
That should not be the case. Whether physically or spiritually, just like Christ, just like the Apostle Paul, we should be with enthusiasm, ready and willing to help. That's the way we should be, to have true love toward one another. We come now to one final passage, and that is in John. 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. We'll read 4, 7 and into chapter 5, 5, 3. 4, 7 to 5, 3. Here he expounds on the meaning and relationship of love. 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time, If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 5 verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Amen. May this be true of us, beloved. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.